from Thanksgiving this last See, we could have defined generosity very easily. Just look at the portions of pie that my in-laws give me. That there is generosity. And we could have said, that's it. Let's go on to something else. Um, but in seriousness, generosity is obviously a lot deeper. Generous is what we all want to be. So in this series, we're simply looking at what it takes to be a generous person. Now, if you missed weeks one and or week two, don't worry. Um, we'll, I'll fill you in in like 30 seconds here. Week one really focused on the essence of what uh, generosity is and why we are generous. And we, we keep coming back to this, that God was so generous by not sparing his own son, but by even giving him. And that's where our generosity flows from also. Last week, we touched on an, an emotion or a feeling that I think all of us have experienced. Like when the, when the offering plate is going by you, sometimes there's this feeling of guilt or regret or uncertainty, and, and we might put something in the plate, but there's just this kind of guilt or this lack of joy in it. Um, what we said last week is that generous people don't have more money. Generous people have a plan. And so having a plan can unlock all sorts of joy because it removes the guilt and regret of giving. Now, um, the goal for this series um, has simply been we want to help you experience the joy and the impact of generosity. So last week we talked a lot about the joy. This week we want to talk about what impact um, generosity can possibly have with us today. Now last week as I started out, I I gave you a myth. Do you remember what the myth was? It was like, um, the myth is I need more money to be generous. And remember what we did with that myth? We just tore it up. We ripped up that myth like you wouldn't believe. We don't need more money to be generous. We just need a plan to be generous. This week, we're going to throw another myth up here. And this myth isn't necessarily completely wrong. There is an element of truth to it, which makes it really tricky. Here's the myth. The myth goes, I should not give if the outcome is questionable. You know what we mean by that? So somebody comes up and they ask you for money. They're like, I need money, I need money, I need money. And you don't know them. You don't know what they're going to spend the money on. You're hesitant to give it to them because you don't know the outcome. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying this is something we need to figure out on a case-by-case basis because if we go too far with this, it bottlenecks our generosity and we're not going to give to anyone because we can't guarantee any outcome. Now, I'll give you one quick example at the beginning and then one example at the end. Um, these examples come from when I was in Arizona, when I was a pastor there. I don't talk about Arizona too often because I miss the weather so much. So, and every time I talk about it, it just makes me cry a little bit on the inside. But in Arizona, the, the church I was at was in a metro area, city, 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 lots of city all around us. And so with beautiful Arizona weather, there were a lot of people who ended up homeless who were like, hey, this isn't so bad. So they would just sort of stay homeless in the, in the Phoenix area. We would get all sorts of people that came to our church asking for money then. They'd say, hey, we need money. We need to pay the bills. We need, I went to the hospital, whatever it is. Lots of homeless people would come and ask for money. So there was one guy in particular who came. I talked to him at least twice. And there were other pastors there, which means he, he had been coming to our church several times. And I'm not going to describe how he looked because I don't want to stereotype, but I'll just tell you, I stereotyped him as he looked like a person who was addicted to Ill- illegal drugs. That's just the impression I had just from looking at him and, and hearing how he talked. Now, here's how he came. He, he came up to me and he said, look, I need $12.58 to get a prescription filled for my infant baby who needs an injection. Laugh at him. The thing I did was just, I'm like, okay, so the baby needs an injection, 
and it's exactly $12.58. So I'm, I'm like, okay, well, tell me where the pharmacy is. We'll, we'll drive there together. And he's like, well, the thing is, and he gave me the exact address. It's like 30 miles away on the other side of Phoenix. I'm like, that's fine. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I'll go up to that, that pharmacy, and we'll go. And he's like, oh, really? That's great. So he said he, he's going to go get his car, and he's going to drive over to church, and then he lived right next door, and then we were going to go together to this pharmacy. Well, guess what? He never came back. Now, here's the funny thing. He did that to me once. I was waiting outside for him, and then he came back a couple months later and gave me the exact same story. And I said, wait a minute. Haven't we been through this already? And there's these tricky situations where we have to figure out if is this an accurate myth to live by or not? Can we give to someone if we're not absolutely certain about the outcome? But where do we draw the line? Now, I didn't say this myth was entirely inaccurate, but there is a better question to ask. Generous people aren't so focused on the outcome of it, but rather generous people are focused on the impact of it. And that's just so deep and profound. I'm going to put it up on the screen as our first fill-in, then I'm going to explain what it means. Generosity disciplines you to focus more on the impact than on the outcome. Outcome means I'm going to give you $12.58 and say goodbye to you. And I, I think you're going to use it on what you said you would. Okay, that's an outcome-based way to ask it. The impact says, how could I display generosity while also while also understanding the importance of not enabling. How can I demonstrate generosity even without giving them a single thing? And we saw that in the video, the very beginning video that we've watched three times now, if you've been here all three weeks. You know, there's this homeless guy who says, I need food, and the guy walks by. What does he first give him? He first gave him what he needed. He gave him some food. The second thing he gave him was time. He talked to him. He sat with him. And then finally, the third thing he gave was here, this can have an impact on this guy's life. He gave him some money. And, th- and there's some wisdom in that. But here's what generosity does. Generosity doesn't just look at one little outcome and say, that's my goal. Generosity sees it more as a ripple effect. There's many things that generosity can hit, even if we don't focus on that outcome. And to, to explain this more and see how this plays out, we're going to look at a section where I think this is played out better than any place else in the Bible. That's why I chose this one. It's in 1 Chronicles, which is the Old Testament, and it's going to talk about King David. Now, to set him up, I just need to ask you a question to keep you engaged here. I assume you have moved at least one time in your life, right? To a new apartment, to a new house, at least, hopefully, you've moved out of mom and dad's house by now, most of you adults. So I know some of you are kind of in that awkward zone. Don't, don't worry, I'm not judging you. But some, most of you have moved at least once in your life, or you've helped your parents move. And there's three phases to moving, Okay. This is like super practical advice for everybody today. Phase one is survival mode. All your kitchen stuff is still in the box. You don't have anything out yet. No plates, no pots, no pans, no silverware. And it's lunchtime or dinner time. You're like, we just need to survive here. So you go out to eat. You order in whatever it is. You get pizza. You're just in survival mode trying to take it one day at a time. After survival mode, there comes this kind of settling in mode where you unpack stuff, you start to put stuff on the wall. Not, every, not everything is unpacked yet, and you're still working through it, but you're just kind of settling in. Then comes the stage every man dreads. It's make the house better mode. Why don't we have a window there? Why don't we have an addition in the back here? Maybe we could do a little bit here or there. It's this improvement mode where you have to take care of the place and also make some improvements on it. Now, mode number three is where King David was at the end of 
near the end of his life. So the Israelites had just moved into this new land, and first of all, it was survival mode, where they had to literally fight for their survival and get out all these other people who were living in the land God promised them. Then they kind of settled in. They had the time of the judges. They were kind of figuring things out. Then they finally got to some kings, King Saul and King David, and things kind of got more set. And then towards the end of David's life, what he recognized, hey, we're kind of feeling good now. Things are really feeling like home. And so he started to make some improvements. He built a, a palace for himself. He, he built up Jerusalem. He did all these building projects. And one day David recognized something. He says, wait a minute. We've done all this stuff, but we have not built a house for God. We don't have a temple to worship at. And so David said, you know what, guys? I'm going to build a temple. And you know what God said? He said, oh, no, you're not. Um, for, for David, God said, you're going to plan this thing. I'm going to give you the blueprints for it, and you're going to get everything ready. But you, David, will not build my temple. You'll just get things ready for your son Solomon, who will be king, to build it. So to build a temple, David recognized this is going to be a long process. And uh, right before we're, the section we're going to look at, David had just had this big fundraiser. And he kicked it off by giving some of his own stuff, his own wealth. And then he invited the people, hey, come give your wealth too. Let's make this a community thing, free will offering. Whatever you want to offer, we'll use it to build the temple. Now I'm going to show you real quickly this, this stuff that they accumulated. And then, then we'll talk about how David reacted to it. So here are some of the things that they accumulated. So we have some gold here. How much gold do you think they, they gathered? Well, here's how much. Um, there's, there's five things on this slide, by the way. 300 tons. And I didn't, I didn't want to convert this into today's value because I think the, the value of gold has changed so much it's hard to do that. But 300 tons of gold is a lot. Silver, 635 tons of silver. By the way, how much is in a ton? 2,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds. So you do the math. This is a lot of stuff. Bronze, 675 tons. Iron is the big one. Iron was 3,750 tons. And by the way, this wasn't just stuff where, hey, we need some gold to pay for the stuff that we're going to use to build with. They were actually going to build with the gold. They were going to put everything in wood and then overlay all the wood with gold and silver and, and a lot of the furniture, furnishings were made out of pure bronze. So you look at these numbers, and it's hard to you know, kind of visualize how much wealth this would have been at one time. And so I, I figured it out. If, if you put all of this stuff onto semi-trailers, how many semis would you need to move this stuff at once? Any guesses? How many semi-trailers? You're probably thinking way too high. It's actually 134 fully loaded semi-trailers. And just picture that, a caravan of 134 semi-trucks, each loaded with maximum capacity of 80,000 80, pounds. That's a lot of junk. A lot of stuff that they have, not junk, a lot of stuff that they had gathered together for this offering. Now, if you were David and, and you're just sitting back and looking at, wow, look at all this wealth that we accumulated what is your reaction going to be? You might gather the people and say, oh, people, this is awesome. You gave all your hard-earned money to this temple project, and how awesome this is. We'll talk about hard-earned in, in just a minute. But if you were David, how would you describe this? Now, since David 
was kind of good at generosity, and since the people excelled at generosity, David didn't just look at this mount of, of gold and silver and everything, he, and he didn't just see this as an outcome of some project. He saw that this had made a tremendous impact because generosity doesn't focus on the outcome as much as it focuses on the impact that it made. And it made two big impacts. Can I go ahead and just tell you what they were right up front and then we'll talk about them? Never mind then. We'll just, I'll, okay, the two things that it impacted most, it, it impacted the way they saw things, the way that they viewed this wealth, and generosity also impacted the way that they felt towards it and the way that they um, ex, um, expressed their uh, reaction to it. So we're going to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This is about 1000 BC. David had just finished this collection to gather 134 semi-loads worth of, of stuff. And now this is how he responds as he speaks to God in front of all the people. David says, Who am I and who are my people that we should even be able to give as generously as this? Who are we that we should even have the ability, the available resources to have a pile of stuff this big? And he's going to tell you why in just a minute, why their identity is, is so important here. But here he just asks the question, who are we that we should be able to do this? He goes on. Everything comes from you, God. And when he says everything, what, is, what does everything mean? It means everything. We have given you only what comes from your hand. I mean, this, this totally reminds me of a, a, a movie that Amy and I watch every Christmas. Maybe it's not the most sanctified one. Christmas Vacation, you guys have watched that one? Clark Griswold, Uncle Eddie. There's this one part of the movie where Clark, who's you know, hosting everybody at his house, and it's just this horrible wreck. But Uncle Eddie comes unexpectedly. He's completely broke. He has no money. And so Clark's like, all right, Eddie, let's just go to Walmart. I'll get you some stuff that you need. And so he's you know, being generous. And Eddie's throwing all this stuff in the cart, like dog food, more dog food, more dog food. He breaks some light bulbs, and it's kind of funny. And then Clark's like, you know what, Eddie? I want your kids to have a good Christmas, so let's just get him a few things. And do you remember how Eddie replied? He's like, oh, Clark, that's awful nice of you. And he pulls out this big list of stuff that he already had, you know, ready for, for Clark to buy for him. And then here's, here's the, the favorite part of it. He's like, you know what, Clark? Why don't you go and buy something real nice for yourself? Go and buy something real nice for you. I want to get you something nice. So it's like, wait, you're asking him to buy himself a really nice present and to pay for it himself? And it's, it's part of the, the, the comedy in the moment there. David's like, we just did the same thing to God. We just took this big collection of stuff, and we just took what God already had, and we gave it back to him. We were like, God, you get yourself something real nice now. And here's the thing. David is like, okay, we know this doesn't make sense, but this is just awesome to see because this is impacting the way we view our money and our wealth. And then David goes on to explain why is it that this is such an, an awkward thing. He said, we are aliens. Aliens isn't aliens. Aliens is just foreigners, people who don't live there. We are foreigners, strangers in your sight. We know what we look like to you. We don't belong where we are. And, and we even have that phrase, if you're an illegal immigrant, you're not really able to invest much in the country, right? You're not going to be able to own a lot or build an empire or anything unless... I won't get into the politics. On paper, that's the way it's supposed to be. So they're saying, we're just illegal immigrants. We don't belong here. 
as were all of our forefathers. We didn't inherit any of this stuff. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. We have nothing going for us, nothing at all. And then he goes on, well, verse 16, he says, O Lord our God, as for all this stuff, 134 semi-trailers of stuff that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it all comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. Here's how David could have taken this a different way. He could have said, Israelites, you guys just did an awesome job of giving your hard-earned money because a generation ago, a few generations ago, we had nothing. We had nothing. But look at what you guys did today. David doesn't take that route. And by the way, before we move on from that, have you ever used that phrase, hard-earned money? I know I have to try to prompt people to do things with their hard-earned money. And, and maybe you, and here's the thing, I think that phrase is so commonly used, it's almost a meaningless phrase by this point, but at the same time, it does communicate an awful lot. If it's hard-earned money, and what does that mean? It means it's yours. And it was hard to get. And not everybody out there should have it. But you, because of who you are, because of what you've done, you are entitled to this hard-earned money that you have. And here's the thing. As soon as we take our possessions in that way, we, we, we close our hands around them, and as long as our hands are closed and our fingers are, are wrapped up in what we have, it is so, so hard to be generous. It's impossible. David saw things as, as much differently. And, and one thing, this isn't just David you know, sharing with them something new that all their stuff was, was from God. This was actually something God impressed on the people the moment they stepped into the land. If you look back at Deuteronomy 26, God is giving them instructions because here's the quick situation. They had been slaves in Egypt for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had no land, few possessions. They were wandering in a desert for 40 years. They couldn't plant anything. They couldn't stop and you know, build up cities or anything. They were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're entering their own land and they're going to have all of it to themselves. And God's like, this is a recipe for disaster because the moment they have this land, they're going to forget about me. So here's what God told them to do. He's like, you're going to go into this land. You're going to start planting stuff. And God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the first crops that you grow. I want you to put them in a big stinking basket and I want you to take this basket to the priest and when you bring it to the priest, this is what you need to say. You shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And if the Old Testament ever used humor, I think this has to be one of it. Because if, if I was a priest and people kept coming to me day after day after day, my father was a wandering Aramean, you know, with their baskets full of fruit, this would just be funny. I would start laughing, and you can make like a comedy skit off this. My father was a wandering Aramean. In fact, could we just, could we say that out loud? I just, I just want to hear it. Let's say it all together. Ready, set, go. My father was a wandering Aramean. And if you want to make a plaque with this and put it in your bedroom or put it on your window or uh, glass in your, in your bathroom, that would be great. My, we, we need to tell ourselves this. My father was a wandering Aramean because here's what it meant to them. My father was a wanderer. 
In other words, we didn't have any land. We didn't have a place to settle. We shouldn't, my father didn't have any crops because he had to buy it from other people. My father was an Aramean, which means he didn't belong in this land. We were from a different place. I belong somewhere else. What I have should not be here. And to, to acknowledge this and to say this phrase to yourself, my father was a wandering Aramean, remind, reminded them, and maybe, maybe if you want to try it, it can remind you too, the stuff I have is not my hard-earned stuff. It was freely given by God. Fill in number two. Generosity impacts your eyes to view, your eyes to view money as freely given to you, not hard-earned by you. And I'll tell you what, if we could change our view of money overnight and just snap our fingers and make it different, this would make such a huge difference in our lives. We'll talk more about that at the end. But first of all, there's another impact generosity has that David's going to get into. It it not only impacts the way we view money, but it impacts the way we feel towards it. Um, Last two verses we're going to look at here, 1 Chronicles 29, 17. David goes on to say this, I know, my God, that you test the heart. If you were here last week, it's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. It's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. David understood that. You test the heart. You are pleased with integrity, and he speaks for himself. All these things I've given, my part of the kitty, I have given willingly and with honest intent. This is something that I was moved to. And and by the way, David had a plan, and that helped him to be willing and honest with it. So David says, look, I'm, I'm joyfully doing this. And then he turns to the people, and he says, this is what I see in the people. I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. And this was so huge. This was so unprecedented for David in his day because all the people had known up to this point was this tithe, this 10%. And and everyone knew this is my 10% that that belongs to God. I don't even own it. I'm just considering it his. This 10% is his, 10% is his. And David says, okay, do your tithe, but we need to do something else too. And, And it... As, as a king, you've got to be thinking, David had to be wondering, is this going to work? Are we going to be able to actually build a temple? <laughs> but then he sees that people don't just, oh, what king gave money, I guess I better give money to her. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look bad. It's not this regretful, guilt-focused giving, but, but David sees with joy how willingly, how excited the people were to be giving to you. David recognized generosity wasn't just about reaching some goal. It was about making an impact. Um, last part here, verse 18. Oh Lord, this is how he finishes off the prayer. Oh Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Here's where I would have done things way different. He says, keep this desire in the hearts of your people. If I was David, I would have said, keep this money coming. We could do a phase two temple. We could make it even greater than it was. We could have, an, we could have two sites for a temple. You know, you, as David sees this, what, wow, we, we hardly even did anything. We got all this money. I would have said, keep this money coming. But David understood that generosity isn't about the outcome. It's about the impact. And so he prays, keep this desire in the hearts of your people and keep their hearts loyal to you. The heart is so, so important. 
And this is something that Jesus understood and he, he, he taught about also. In fact, this is a text that Ben brought up in the first week, but here we'll dig into it just a little bit. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So David said, keep their hearts loyal to you. Here's, here's what this looks like. When you buy something, when you pay for something, when you invest in something, or when you give to someone, a little bit of your heart goes along with it. For example, if you make a, a big purchase, let's say you buy a car, and you're asking your friend who bought a similar car, hey, how, you bought the same car, how does it work, how is it? What does your friend always say? Unless it was a complete lemon, what do they say? It's great. It's the bomb. This, this is the best car ever. And do you know why we're always so quick to focus on the positives of the things we buy? It's because when we pay for it, a piece of our heart goes along with it. And this is the same reason why it's so hard to pay tickets. I'm just judging you to see who's responding to this. When you get a fine in the mail or when you do something wrong, you get a ticket and you have to pay it. It is so painful. So I, I know I'm ratting him out, but last night, Saturday night, we had Brad Brecky here, and he just started laughing the moment I said that. Everyone else was stone quiet. Brad was like, oh! I'm like, Brad, how many tickets have you had, my friend? And then Jackie's just, oh my goodness, she's looking at him like he's crazy. But it's so hard to pay these tickets, to actually write out the check, because a part of our heart goes along with it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So David prayed, God, keep these people's hearts loyal to you. Because generosity is not about reaching an outcome. Generosity is about an impact. So this third fill-in kind of gives you a practical way to go forward. Generosity impacts your heart to give away, to give away, to give away, to, to be strategic in the way it gives away the thing that could have the power to control it. And there's a, a practical um, application I'll share with you in just a moment on that. Um, but first of all, as we wrap up this series there's one part of this uh, week that we haven't touched on yet. So far, we've talked about, uh, talked about the impact generosity has on you, on you, on you. But the, the good question that we have to end with is this. What impact can we have on others? David understood to build a temple required generosity that made an impact. What is the temple God wants us to build? And here you're thinking, all right, here's where he's going to talk about the new property and how we need to raise money and how many semi-trails, I don't know. I'm not going to talk about the building because we're going to have a capital campaign soon and I don't want to, <laughs> no. Here's the thing. When, when Jesus came, so many people were focused on the building already. And we saw that in, in John chapter 2. These, the, the religious leaders were so focused on this building, this temple that they had to take care of and they needed to charge money so that they could put money into it and keep money. For, and everything was so focused on the temple. In fact, one day Jesus' disciples were, were walking by Jerusalem and they said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, look at how awesome all those buildings are out there. Look at that temple, Jesus. And Jesus just shakes his head. He's like, Guys, Pretty soon that temple is going to be leveled. There won't be two stones on top of each other. And then he went on to tell them something much more important. You see, in the New Testament, it's never about 
building a physical temple. There is no sacred place. There is no holy place that God draws people towards. And here's something that's going to make you kind of chuckle for a moment, and you'll have to think about this. But here's what the New Testament says. More holy and more sacred than any place is the person sitting next to you. God has made them a temple of his Holy Spirit through what Jesus has done. He, he cleaned them out. He set them up. He made them holy. The person next to you is much more holy and sacred to God than any place, any building in this world. Now, I don't want to undermine our, our building project. We need a building. We need a place <laughs> to connect people to God's word where the transformation happens. But the focus, the New Testament focus, is not on some holy ground, not some sacred place. It's on the people. So I'll fill in number four here. Your generosity can build many temples in, in the sense that you see the impact generosity can have on people's lives. An impact to see money differently and an impact to feel differently towards the money we have. Now you might be thinking, this, this is a lot of abstract stuff, I know. So I want to send you home with at least three practical things to do this week. And this is going to reach out to you whether you're a Christian or not or whether you're a member or not. So here are three things that all of us can do. Number one, the thing you need to do is give it to prove it. In other words, just to prove that money doesn't control you, why don't you just give it away? Not all of it. Have a plan, if you missed the plan, to listen to last week's sermon. Have a plan to give it away. And here's where I understand, if you're new to Bethlehem, if you're a guest, or if, if, if you're just checking out this whole church thing, I understand that that's totally self-serving the way it comes out, that you need to give to the church, just give to the church, give to the church. And I, I understand how that sounds. Now, if you're a member, you do need to give to the church. Okay, there's no option for you. You're kind of stuck with it. But if you're just figuring things out, and if you're skeptical, oh, the church just wants my money, fine. I, I understand that. So here's what I want you to do, or here's what you can do. Instead of giving it to the church, just find some place to get rid of it, just to prove that it does not have control over you. Just take that money, take whatever it is, that 5%, 10%, whatever it is, just give it away to some place that you think it'll do some, some good. And here's what I believe you will find. You will find that it will have a great impact on you but it'll also have a great impact on the world around you. And once you experience the joy and the impact of generosity, you're going to think, well, wait a minute. Is there a church that I could invest in that leads people to Jesus? Now, that would be an impact. Um, a second thing you can do here, recalculate for all, not for some. In other words, what David said was, you know what? This is what we, it's, everything is yours, God. Everything is yours. And it's so easy for me and for all of us to get into this percentage game where God owns 5% or 10% or whatever you've planned, that's what God has. What if instead of saying this part is, is um, something I'm going to give to God, what if you said everything is going to be for God, 100%? Not that you give it all, but that you, you consider it as how can I use my gifts for the glory of God, and to take care of things he wants me to take care of. And I believe that alone could have the power to have a big impact. And maybe you're kind of skeptical. You're like, well, I don't know if I can do 100%. Well, what about this? What if you did 95% for God and the, the other 5% was everything else? 
knock it off. Stop doing that other stuff. Let's just do 100% for God. That's all I'm saying. And then the last one here, and this is just a different way of looking at things. Instead of saying, well, what will this person do with my money? Ask the question, what will this do for them? What will this do for them? And I'll give one quick example of what I mean by that. So back to Arizona. There was this other guy who was just traveling through. I, I can't remember. He was coming from California, going somewhere else, and he was stuck in the middle in Arizona. And, and so he was just traveling through, and he's like, I don't have any money left. He said, I need food, and I need a way to get to whatever place. I can't remember where exactly it was. So I'm like, well, we, we got a food pantry. He's like, I, I don't have a place to eat it. So I'm like, all right, all right. How about we just go to the grocery store down the street? They have a, a, a food court in there. You can, I'll, I'll get you something. I don't have any cash, but I'll take you there, and, and we'll, we'll use my credit card to buy some stuff. So he's like, hey, that, that'd be great. That's real generous. So, so we drove to the grocery store. It was only a block down the road. It wasn't that intense. And, and he, I let him order some food. I paid for it, and he sat down. And I didn't want to stare at him while he ate, so I kind of wandered off in the store. And by the time I came back, he was talking to the people sitting next to him. And as it turns out, they were going to the place that he needed to go, and they had offered him a ride. Now, I'm just thinking, what happens if I had been so focused on the outcome instead of the impact? And I always get this right, by the way. (laughs) I also lie in church. What if we could focus, instead of focusing on just the outcome, well, what is he going to do with this food, or what is he going to do with this money, instead of ask the question, what impact could I make just to demonstrate the kind of love that God has shown to me? Here's what I believe, here's what I know. As we put these things into practice individually as a congregation, oh my goodness, this is going to be a huge impact, not just for you, but for the world around you. Now, we're going to start a new series next week, so make sure you come back. Uh, Before then, let me close this off with a prayer. Heavenly Father, every day I marvel at the tremendous generosity that you have for all the people in this world, all the people in this room. You did not spare your only son, but you gave him up for us. As we are fed by your generosity, help us to put that generosity into practice in our lives because we know that this is a practice, this is an exercise that you want for us, for our good, to make an impact in our lives, but then beyond that, to have a huge impact on the world around us. Bless us as we do that. Hear us as we pray in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We will continue with an opportunity to